0: This is Unshaken, a channel where we try to dive in and go as close to verse by verse through the scriptures as we possibly can. I'm Jared Halverson, your host, and I am grateful, relieved, and frankly, a bit surprised that you keep coming back for more. I've had more first dates than second dates in my life. And so when people come and want to keep studying scripture together, I'm thrilled. So welcome aboard. I did want to remind everybody that there is a podcast version of this. Now, admittedly, it's just the audio files of these videos. And so if you're new to the podcast, I apologize. We don't have some fancy intro or outro or anything like that. But this is a one man show, so doing the best that I can. In fact, it would really help move things forward if any of you who do listen to the podcast version, if you would like it or subscribe to it or leave a comment or a rating, that helps get the word out or so I'm told. I'm kind of new to all of this. In fact, it was funny, I had somebody reach out to me that has kind of an online presence herself uh, with LDS uh, themed ideas and so on and she reached out to me and said, I love Unshaken, love what you're doing there Uh, and I'd love to help publicize it on my own sites. Could you have somebody from your design team send over a logo? And I just laughed as I read the email going, my design team, uh, you're looking at it. It's almost like when you're a kid and you're making those home videos and at the end you just want your name on as many lines as you can in the credits. So it's like, design, you know, set design, me, starring me, directed by me, produced by me. And that's what, that's what Unshaken is. Uh, so I apologize for the low uh, production values. Uh, I stand behind the content. Uh, I feel very strongly about the scriptures, and I'm grateful for the chance to, to speak about them. And uh, everything else, I hope, is is sufficient not to get in the way of what really matters, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ as conveyed by these, by these prophets. It hit me, though, because this week I heard from my producer. Now, not the show's producer, because that's me, but my producer, which is my mom. She produced me. She's been watching Unshaken from the beginning, probably to make sure I don't say anything that would embarrass the family. But she shared something with me last week after watching the videos from Mormon one through six. And I loved what she said, so shout out to mom. She's been reading the book called The Midwife. I guess it's a TV show now as well, but knowing my mom who probably hasn't sat still long enough to watch a single TV show in her life, uh, I'm guessing this came from the book. But there was a woman who lived a very privileged life and then gave it all up in order to work in the slums of London. And somebody asked her, was it love of people? Just wondering what motivated her. And the woman responded with these words, of course not. How can you love ignorant, brutish people whom you don't even know? Can anyone love filth and squalor or lice and rats? Who can love aching weariness and carry on working in spite of it? One cannot love these things. One can only love God and through his grace come to love his people. What a profound insight that what enables and empowers and ennobles the second great commandment, love of our neighbor, is our obedience to the first great commandment, love of God. And as we are infused with that divine love, the gift of charity, the pure love of Christ, That's what motivates us to love the unlovable and to serve those that we don't even know. And that describes Mormon to a T. In fact, with my mom's help sharing that great quote with me, you remember what he said in Mormon 3 that we studied last week? I had loved them, speaking of his people, as wicked as they were. I had loved them according to the love of God which was in me. He didn't love them because they deserved it. He didn't love them because he loved them directly, at least not primarily. He loved them because he knew that God loved them. And as a vessel of that love, he was able to feel for them what Heavenly Father did. In fact, with that in my mind, I went back and a few other phrases jumped off the page from last week's material in the first six chapters of Mormon. Because do you remember when he was praying for them? This is Mormon 3, verse 12. He said he prayed, but it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. And then fast forward two chapters, and in chapter 5, it says that he led them, but without hope because he knew the judgments of the Lord. And what struck me in putting all these things together, Mormon is an expert on faith, hope, and charity. We'll study that when we get to Moroni chapter 7 in a month or two. But take those three attributes, the three cardinal Christian virtues, and according to Mormon's own admission, because of the wickedness of the people all around him, at times he was without faith and without hope, but he was never without charity. Whatever trials you might be facing, and whatever struggles you deal with on an interpersonal level, in your efforts to lift and lead, in your efforts to rescue or gather, If you are ever faltering in your faith or wavering in your hope, rely on charity, the pure love of Christ, which suffereth long and which never faileth. Mormon is such a beautiful example of that. So thank you, mom, my producer, for bringing that quote to my attention. It's amazing. Again, reviewing last week's material, is just how much charity Mormon did have and how much he assumed his latter-day readers, you and I, would have for his subject as well. Remember, he refers to the Gentiles, you and I in this case, as having care for the house of Israel. Do we? Do we have care for them? Do we care about them at all? He even suggests several times this concern on his part of having too great a sorrow. It's one of the things that held him back from giving a a fuller account of all of the tragedy that he was beholding firsthand. He worried that we might be weighed down with too great sorrow over the wickedness of the people that he was working with. Are we in danger of having too great sorrow or too little when we consider what these people went through? What emotions do we have as we are reading these words? And do those emotions move us and motivate us to do something to show our care for the house of Israel, to be more fully engaged in the gathering. I think we get another sense of that from Mormon's part in Mormon chapter seven, which are his final words addressed to whom? To the people he cared for and the people we are supposed to care for. And ironically, it wasn't his own people because by now they were gone. It was his enemies. It was the Lamanites. In chapter seven, verse one, he says, and he's speaking into the camera as he does so. Now behold, I would speak somewhat unto the remnant of this people who are spared. Now that word remnant is important. Almost every time we see it in scripture, it should trigger in our minds the thoughts of gathering Israel. Remember how often Isaiah is quoted in the Book of Mormon? And it's always to emphasize the promised gathering that will eventually take place. Well, Isaiah, like many prophets, is not just a spokesman for God, but he becomes a symbol for him. And often what prophets are asked to do, not just what they're asked to teach, is meant to convey some truth about our Father in heaven. In Isaiah's case, a lot of it had to do with the names he was asked by God to give to his children. Because judging from the names that he chose, I don't know if Sister Isaiah would be really thrilled to christen her children with those names if she didn't know that they came from command by God. One of them, for example, was Maharshalal Hashbaz. Can you imagine calling that every time you needed your child to come in for dinner? Another one was named She'er Yashub. And that's the one that's interesting in this context, because Sheir Yashub means a remnant shall return. That was one of the main messages of Isaiah's work. A promise that scattered Israel would be gathered again, a remnant of those people something left, something that remains, no matter what happens to the rest of the world around it, a remnant shall return. They have not been cast off forever. In fact, at one point, this is Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is supposed to bring his son, Shear Yashub, along as he goes to visit King Ahaz, as his visual aid. Because as Isaiah goes to see King Ahaz, the promise is that God will not leave us comfortless, that he will make sure that a remnant returns. And if you don't believe me, Ahaz, I brought the embodiment of that promise. Here, I'd like you to meet my son. A remnant shall return. I'm so serious about this that I named my son that. See, the Lord says to him in that chapter, go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and She'er Yashub thy son. I love that. See what he's doing? Bring the visual aid, Isaiah. Bring your son to show King Ahaz and to reassure him how serious I am that I promise a remnant shall return. Ahaz is still unsure about that. Hard to have that level of trust in God when the enemies of Israel are bearing down upon you. It's then that Isaiah says, then ask God for a sign. And Ahaz like, no, I'm not going to do that. And Isaiah then says, fine, he'll give you one regardless. And it's then in that context that he speaks of another son that will bear witness that God is serious about keeping his promises. I've named mine, a remnant shall return and I'm bringing him. Another son will eventually come whose name will be Emmanuel, God with us a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And that son, Jesus, will be proof of Emmanuel, proof that God is with us, just like I brought my son as proof, as a sign, that the remnant of Israel would return. See how these two prophecies and promises come together? The the names of these two promised sons give symbolic evidence that God is serious about this, Later in Isaiah chapter 10, he doesn't have to bring his son along this time, but he does use the name. When Isaiah promises, the remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. Seriously, as you study the book of Mormon, keep an eye out for that word remnant. It's on the title page. As Moroni says that these words are written to the Lamanites who are a remnant of the house of Israel. It's all that's left of them here on the American continent. Yes, it's also written to the Jew and Gentile, Moroni says, but his chief audience, his primary target with these words, is the remnant of the house of Israel, the Lamanites. The original Nephi at the beginning of the Book of Mormon talks about his own family, his people, as a remnant of the house of Israel frequently. He keeps referring it to a branch that is broken off, but he calls it a remnant In 1 Nephi 10 and 1 Nephi 15 and 1 Nephi 19, even when Captain Moroni is making the title of liberty, this one kind of gets lost in the shuffle there, but he takes his cloak, right? And then he compares it to the coat of Joseph of Egypt and says that even though his brothers sold him into Egypt and destroyed that coat, a remnant of it was preserved to the point that Jacob, Joseph's father, held on to that remnant as... Not a a souvenir, but rather a witness, a promise, evidence that a remnant of his posterity would be preserved as well, no matter what happened to the rest of the family. Don't forget, the Book of Mormon peoples felt like scattered Israel. They were not in the original Holy Land, that promised land made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they centered their faith and hope in this idea of a remnant returning. That is Mormon's audience here. There's no one else to speak to. His people, his civilization has been completely annihilated. And so I speak somewhat unto the remnant of this people who are spared, if it so be that God may grant unto them my words. Now, Mormon knew better than that. He knew that God would grant that they would receive these words, That was a promise God made to prophet after prophet throughout the earlier books of the Book of Mormon. And knowing that that would be the case, that this remnant of the house of Israel would eventually receive these words, Mormon feels comfortable turning directly into the camera and speaking to them. So he shifts from third person, I speak unto the remnant of this people, to second person, I speak unto you, ye remnant of the house of Israel. And these are the words which I speak. So to you, posterity of the Lamanites, to you, remnant of the house of Israel, to you, Gentiles who are grafted in whenever you lay hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these are Mormon's final words, his last invitation, his dying message to you. And it centers on things he wants you to know. Verse 2 know that ye are of the house of Israel. He wants you to know who you are. Verse 3, know that ye must come unto repentance or ye cannot be saved. He wants you to know what you must do. Verse 4, know that ye must lay down your weapons of war and delight no more in the shedding of blood and take them not again, save it be that God shall command you. He wants you to know what you must repent of. See, Mormon's message so far, so quick, just punctuating this message. These are things you have to understand. You need to know who you are, covenant people. You need to know what to do, repent. You need to know what to repent of, of fighting God, of keeping your dukes up. Remember Mormon already said, the spirit ceases to strive with man. Eventually, he'll stop fighting. Please stop fighting him first and please stop fighting one another. Bury your weapons of war, the weapons of your rebellion deep in the earth, just like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. I have a son, great kid, that sometimes when there needs to be some, some discipline in the family, he'll feel like I've become his enemy. And there are times where he, he really does want to fight. Thankfully, he's nonviolent. But in terms of just arguing and I don't want to have to do this, just your basic teenager, I was similar, I'm sure ask my producer. But what's interesting with him is often I would just have to say to him, son, I'm not fighting. My dukes are down. I'm on your team. I know it doesn't feel like that all the time, but please know that I love you and I want the best for you and I'm on your side. There's no need to fight me on this. I get a sense from a loving Father in heaven saying to these who spent their lives in war, nobody knows that better than Mormon, who has just succumbed to their weapons of war, whose own armies have been annihilated by those who delight in the shedding of blood. And he's pleading with them, of all the things you need to repent of, it's your enmity, it's your opposition, it's your unwillingness to have a softened heart To the point you're willing to put your dukes down and lay down your weapons of war. As King Benjamin would say, just yield. Just submit. Let the Spirit have free reign in your life. He continues in verse 5 with what he wants his audience to know. Here it's what he wants them to learn. Know ye that ye must come to the knowledge of your fathers, but not just in some kind of vague family history lesson. It's a knowledge of where you come from in pursuit of a knowledge of what you need to do as a result. It's very similar to what he says in verse 2, 3, 4. You got to know who you are, house of Israel, so you'll know what to do. Repent of your sins. Similarly here. Know who you are. Come to a knowledge of your fathers so that you'll know what to do. Repent of all your sins and iniquities. That's the message that was given to your fathers by the prophets for centuries And it's all made possible because of the Savior. Believe in Jesus Christ, he therefore continues. And what do you need to believe about him? That he is the son of God, that he was slain by the Jews and by the power of the father, he hath risen again, whereby he hath gained the victory over the grave. And also in him is the sting of death swallowed up. Powerful phrase coming from someone who understood the sting of death in ways that few people who have ever lived have come to understand. In verse 6, Jesus bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, whereby man must be raised to stand before his judgment seat. See what he wants them to know about Jesus? His divinity, his atonement, his crucifixion and resurrection, and resurrection not just to the good news that we'll all live again but to the potentially scary news that we'll live again to face God. This is what Amulek taught back in Alma 11. This is what Alma, his old mission companion, taught later to his sons in Alma what 40 and 41. That resurrection is inseparable from judgment. That those two come together as Christ unconditionally overcomes the fall and brings life back to those who die because of Adam and Eve's transgression and brings them all back into the presence of God overcoming physical death, the separation of body and spirit, and overcoming spiritual death, the first time, overcoming the separation between God and humanity. This is the plan of salvation. This is what it's all about. And Mormon wants his audience to understand that. He explains it more in verse seven, and he hath brought to pass the redemption of the world, whereby he that is found guiltless before him at the judgment day hath it given unto him to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above unto the Father and unto the Son and unto the Holy Ghost, which are one God in a state of happiness, which hath no end. That is a powerful verse that deserves to be unpacked. Who are these great blessings promised to? Those that are found guiltless. Now to find something suggests that it was lost before. And yes, our innocence was lost. Sometimes it's a surprise to find something that you think you'd, will never turn up again. And in this case, it will be as surprising to us as to anyone else when we are found guiltless. Now the word guiltless is interesting. I compare it to a set of words that are similar to it that Paul uses to the, with the Philippians. He talks about those who are harmless and blameless. Now those words are worth wrestling with as well. What's the difference between harmless and blameless? Can you be one and not the other, or is it all or nothing? I think sometimes we're not harmless, even when we're blameless. We hurt someone, but we didn't intend to. We didn't realize what we were doing. It was unintentional. Other times we're harmless, but not blameless. We did something wrong. Thankfully, for whatever reason, it didn't actually do any damage to someone. But we are guilty before God, and probably most frequently, both occur together. Where because of our sins, of commission or omission, we are neither harmless or blameless. We have done harm, and we are to blame. And because of our fallen natures, because of our mere humanity, it's unavoidable. And yet, even when we are not fully harmless or blameless, because of the redemption that Jesus brings into the world, we can yet be found guiltless because Jesus has assumed that guilt himself. He's taken upon himself our sins and our stains. His atonement provides the grace that makes up for the mistakes that we have made in terms of what they have done to harm other people and to bring the blame for that upon ourselves. In the face of all that I have done that has made me neither harmless nor blameless, I am grateful that I can still be found guiltless before God at the judgment day. But that is a gift, a gift of grace, not something I've earned because of my works. Did you catch how he said it in the next phrase? It is given unto him to dwell in the presence of God. It is not by right, not something God owes us, not something we've earned or deserve, but it is something that is given to us by the giver of every good gift. And what is that gift? to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom. To do what? Among other things, to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above. I love that this battle-hardened veteran, this grizzled commander-in-chief that for 60 years has led his people against the enemy, just wants to sing. He wants to join the choir and sing ceaseless praises to God to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Ghost, who may be separate in terms of personage, but are truly one in every other meaningful aspect of that word. One in purpose, one in spirit, one in forgiveness, one in love, one in grace, one in their desire and their efforts to bring to pass their collective work and glory, which is to bring us home to welcome us into the choir. Now that will be a state of happiness, which hath no end. Mormon's life must have been brutally difficult. Being surrounded by a people who suck the faith and hope right out of you, but not the charity. I imagine that happiness didn't come very often or stay very long, as far as outside perspective was concerned what was happening all around him, not much happiness at all. And so for Mormon to see, to put his eggs in eternity's basket, that if I can continue faithful, trust in the grace of God, repent of sins, like I'm pleading with my people to do, then I can enter into that state of rest, that state of peace, that state of happiness, which is endless. It's with all of that in mind verse two through seven, all the things he wants us to know, that he can shift from knowledge back to action, belief converting into behavior. And it's the behavior he has been pleading with his people and his readers to do from the beginning. Verse eight, therefore, because of all that I've said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and lay hold upon the gospel of Christ, which shall be set before you, not only in this record, but also in the record which shall come unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you. That's been his message from the beginning, along with that of every other Book of Mormon prophet. Repent, make covenants with Christ in his name, lay hold upon the iron rod, lay hold upon every good gift, lay hold upon the gospel of Christ. It's been set before you. The table's been laid. Come to the feast and partake. This fruit is more desirable than any other fruit. And it is being presented in its fullness in this book, as well as in the book that God has given on the other side of the world. Several times in the Book of Mormon, we see it in Nephi, we'll see it from Moroni's words in Ether, we see it here from Mormon himself, this witness, this dual witness of these two testaments of Jesus Christ, the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph, becoming one in our hand, as Ezekiel prophesied, to all those wonderful Bible believers that are hesitant to embrace the Book of Mormon because they feel like they are being untrue to their original witness of Jesus. The Book of Mormon and its compiler, its editor, Mormon himself, doesn't see any competition between the two because he fully embraces not just the book that has his name on it, but the book that does not. Mormon was a Bible believer, not just a Book of Mormon believer. In fact, in some ways, he would still place his own book in second place. Look at verse nine. For behold, this, the Book of Mormon, is written for the intent that ye may believe that. The Bible. Now, that's an amazing statement. One of the purposes of the Book of Mormon is to add credence to the Bible? Well, that makes sense. If it's a second witness, then it's giving biblical backup. And honestly, the Bible needs and deserves that kind of backup. I lived in the Bible Belt for eight years. And I remember the first time I went on an exchange with the missionaries, we talked to this wonderful Southern Baptist family that were not interested in the Book of Mormon because Bible was all that they needed. And I just felt moved to say to this good man that the Book of Mormon is the best friend the Bible ever had. He wasn't sure what to make of that. And I said, you know, here in the Bible Belt, I knew here, okay, we just moved. And I just moved here from Utah. Now, I originally grew up in Southern California, and there was all kinds of opposition to my faith and all kinds of opposition to yours as well. Then I went to Utah and realized, wow, I'm in the majority. And it almost lulled me into this false sense that the Book of Mormon has no enemies, because hey, everybody believes it. And you may have that impression here in the Bible Belt. When Christianity is part of your culture and not just part of your covenants, it's easy to come away thinking, there's no enemies here. Everybody believes in the Bible. But come outside, not just the Bible belt, but the Bible bubble, and you will realize just how many people have their crosshairs on the Word of God. The Bible, in fact, has been under attack far longer than the Book of Mormon has. And, frankly, with many of the same weapons, and judged and condemned by many of the same criteria. I've said this often to people, that both the Bible and the Book of Mormon rise and fall under the same kinds of conditions of judgment. So I felt keenly the truth of what I said to that good man, that the Book of Mormon is the best friend the Bible ever had. When I was in divinity school, it's interesting, like most graduate programs, they specialize in deconstruction and don't care much about reconstruction of your worldview. And so for many, especially conservative Christians that go to divinity school, being Pushed through the, the rigors of higher criticism of the scriptures. They come out with a very changed, in some ways warped perspective on the Word of God. remember in one class, it was a, a homiletics class, of the theology that goes into preaching. And a fellow classmate of mine, a wonderful Nazarene minister in training, near the end of the semester said to me, Jared, I just wanted to thank you for helping to restore my faith in the Bible. And I remember thinking, What alternate universe am I living in that a Protestant minister in training is thanking a Latter-day Saint for restoring her faith in the Bible? What's going on here? And she said, you know, when I came to Divinity School, I had such faith in the Bible, such a belief in it, a love for it. It's what propelled me here. The Bible had spoken to my soul all growing up and I just wanted to be able to teach its power within my church in some congregation somewhere. And then I came." And my faith in scripture took a hit as we spent so much time trying to take it all apart and not doing as much to put it back together. But you, you love the Bible. All semester Long, we've been studying passages to try to f- unlock theology that we can preach from the pulpit. And every time you talk about the Bible, I can tell how much you love it and how much you believe in its truth and its message. I don't know a lot about Mormonism and whatever you guys believe, but I am grateful for your love of the Bible. Now I imagine she didn't want to hear this, but why did I still believe in the Bible? Because I believed in the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon is biblical backup from the same source. This was given that we might believe that and in a secularized world that is sapping the spiritual strength out of so many Bible believers, our second witness of Jesus Christ can shore up people's faith in the first witness of Jesus Christ. And just like the Book of Mormon fortifies the Bible, the Bible fortifies the Book of Mormon as well. These two books of scripture are mutually reinforcing. As Mormon continues, if ye believe that the Bible. Ye will believe this also, Book of Mormon. They are both part of the one great whole. Their prophets, old world and new world, are all part of the same cloud of witnesses, meant to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And if you accept that message, that dual testimony, or as Mormon puts it, if ye believe this from whichever source, what will you know? I keep telling you over and over and over through these verses what I want you to know. Well, what will you know if you study the word of God? You will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them. Again, it's not just a family history lesson. It's a divine history lesson. It's not just your fathers you need to come to know. It is the father and the son and the spirit that you will come to know through these words. Verse 10, Mormon then concludes his message to this audience. And ye will also know that ye are a remnant. There's that word again. The branch broken off, the undecayed piece of material on the coat of many colors. You are a remnant of the seed of Jacob. Therefore, ye are numbered among the people of the first covenant. You who feel like you're last, you're actually first. God's covenant people, heirs of the promises of God. And as a result, if it so be that ye believe in Christ and are baptized, first with water, then with fire and with the Holy Ghost, following the example of our Savior, according to that which he hath commanded us, it shall be well with you in the day of judgment. Amen. That's what Mormon has been after from the beginning trying to help people win the real war, the one with eternal consequences. Remember we saw that so beautifully last week in the the chapters that precede this. They win a battle, a physical one, and still he laments over the calamity that they are facing because of their wickedness. And this incredible man, one of the final witnesses to see the judgment of God passed to the condemnation of his people, is trying to prepare people for the ultimate day of judgment in hopes that it will be well with us. Because we believe in Christ, there's faith. Because we've repented of our sins, as he's encouraged us to do several times in this chapter. Because we've made covenants with God, having been baptized with water and with fire. There's the Holy Ghost. And then we endure to the end, following the example of the Savior this is the gospel of Christ. This is the doctrine of Jesus. It's how Nephi the first ends his message. It's how Mormon the final ends his. These are the bookends of the Book of Mormon. It could have ended right there if Moroni had not picked up the baton and given us a little bit more. And if it had ended there, from start to finish, here is the doctrine of Christ. This is how we get home. Now, as powerful an ending as that is, to give Mormon the final word in the Book of Mormon, I am grateful that his son Moroni outlived his father just long enough to finish his father's work and proceed to perform a little bit of his own. As chapter eight begins, there still seems to be a sense on Moroni's part that this is his father's work and he's just here to complete it. He doesn't yet know how long he'll outlive his father to be able to perform an incredible ministry and share messages of his own. So in chapter eight, verse one, behold, I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father, Mormon. He does nothing here to introduce himself as if he didn't think his own identity or his own mission mattered much, if there would be any mission to speak of. So I'm just going to put this down as quickly as I can. I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father, Mormon. Behold, I have but few things to write, which things I have been commanded by my father. So he doesn't intend to write much. It's not his own message, not his own words. I'm just trying to complete my father's work. Verse two, now it came to pass that after the great and tremendous battle at Cumorah, behold, the Nephites who had escaped into the country southward. And dad had mentioned them briefly in passing. Moroni now gives us the end of their story. They were hunted by the Lamanites until they were all destroyed. We talk about fight or flight. Well, in the battles with the adversary, at the end of the day, there is no flight. There is only fight. And it's a fight we must win. Those Nephites who simply tried to flee to the south, they were destroyed as well. In verse three and four, Moroni then talks a little bit about what's happened with his father and what's happening to him. But you get a sense of where his real priorities lay. Verse three, my father also was killed by them, and I even remain alone to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people. But behold, they are gone, and I fulfill the commandment of my father, and whether they will slay me, I know not. Therefore, I will write and hide up the records in the earth, and whither I go, it mattereth not. You get a sense of Moroni's priorities there? In verse 3, Moroni's own survival doesn't matter to him. All that matters is fulfilling the commandments of his father. In verse four, Moroni's future, what he's going to do, where he's going to go, that doesn't matter to him either. All that matters to him is the records that he will write and hide up. It's the message, not the messenger that matters. Moroni fully understands that. So did his father. Verse five, my father hath made this record and he hath written the intent thereof. Often in these chapters, you get a sense of Moroni like, I can't write it all. I don't have the or, I don't have the time. I don't know how long I'm going to survive. You, you just read it. Dad already wrote it down. You know what it's for. Verse 5 continues, and he almost sends Moroni at an all time low. He says, Dad's done his work. You get the idea. He says, Behold, I would write it also. I would add my own second witness if I had room upon the plates. But I have not, and or I have none. For I am alone. My father hath been slain in battle. All my kinsfolk, and I have not friends nor whither to go, and how long the Lord will suffer that I may live, I know not. You get a sense of what Moroni is going through? Talk about the personification of what President Hinckley used to say about the loneliness of leadership. I don't think anyone in Nephite history felt it as keenly as Moroni did. No ore to add to the plates, no father, no family. No friends, and as far as he knew, no future. It was all writing on the past, at least the record of the past, that he would give his life to preserve. Verse 6, he says that 400 years have passed away since the coming of our Lord and Savior, which is one of the less remembered prophecies of Samuel the Lamanite. We focus so much on his prophecy of the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus, but remember, Samuel did prophesy that 400 years after the coming of Christ, the Nephite civilization would come crashing down to its own annihilation. Moroni is living through that. Verse seven, he says, the Lamanites have hunted my people, the Nephites, down from city to city and from place to place, even until they are no more. And great has been their fall. There's a lot of weight behind that language. When Jesus talked about the foolish man building his house upon the sand, what did he say when the storm beat upon it? He said it fell and great was the fall of it. When Nephi sees in vision this explanation of the great and spacious building, he sees that it fell and the fall thereof was exceedingly great. Later Nephi tries to explain what the great and abominable church was all about, and he said prophesying that it would tumble to the dust and great shall be the fall of it. Now take all three of those examples and tie it back into what Moroni is witnessing, living through. Great has been the fall of his people. Why? Because they built their houses upon the shifting sands of cultural current or the cares of the world instead of founding it deep on the rock of the Redeemer, the bedrock of the gospel. Why? Because his people gravitated toward the great and spacious building instead of the tree of life. Why? Because his people ended up doing more to build up the great and abominable church than to build up the kingdom of the great and true God. No wonder his people fell and great was their fall. By the end, they were no different than those other things who greatly fell as well. In fact, he adds this phrase at the end of verse 7, Yea, great and marvelous is the destruction of my people, the Nephites. We're used to seeing that phrase, great and marvelous, in a different context. And yet I think there's beauty in seeing the parallel. Great and marvelous was their destruction just like there will be a great and marvelous work that will restore them to the knowledge of God. And as Moroni admits in verse 8, behold, it is the hand of the Lord which hath done it. Now, he's not blaming God here. We saw his own father say, it is by the wicked that the wicked are destroyed. God can simply remove his protective power. But Moroni is wise to see the Lord's hand in all of this not wondering where is God through all this difficulty, but he sees the hand of God, even in this time of trial and adversity. And then he points out this interesting fact, behold also the Lamanites are at war, one with another. The whole face of this land is one continual round of murder and bloodshed, and no one knoweth the end of the war. Now, you'd think that with the complete annihilation of the Nephite civilization, that the Lamanites wouldn't have anything else to do, they could settle into a nice easy retirement enjoy all their silks and fine twined linens, right? All of these costly apparel, sit back and revel in the pride of the world. But no, it's not so much that they wanted to fight righteousness, though they definitely did. They just wanted to fight. Thomas Paine coined a term in common sense that he called "enemyship," And that seems to be the name of the game for them. They were just believers in enemyship, And if I can make enemies out of people, even out of one another, then that gives me something to do. I'm just oppositional. I'm full of enmity. I'm a fighter. I delight in bloodshed and murder. No wonder no one knows the end of the war. That kind of war never ends until the people change their desires. Now verse nine, Moroni is not interested in talking about them. The land is full of Lamanites and robbers. That's all that he sees. But then in verse 10, "There are none that do know the true God. Save it be the disciples of Jesus, who did tarry in the land. But even they don't seem to come around much anymore. He says, the wickedness of the people was so great that the Lord would not suffer them to remain with the people. His father, Mormon, had said similar things. Moroni then says, "And whether they be upon the face of the land, no man knoweth. But behold, my father and I have seen them. They have ministered unto us. For Moroni's sake, I am grateful that that took place, that even when we feel we are completely alone in the world, that's not quite the case. Verse 12, Moroni then says, back to focusing on the record that has been his father's life's work. Whoso receiveth this record and shall not condemn it because of the imperfections which are in it, the same shall know of greater things than these. Behold, I am Moroni, were it possible I would make all things known unto you. You get this sense often from Moroni, actually. He's the one that writes the title page. And on it he says, If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. He'll say it again later in this chapter in verse 17. If there be faults, they be the faults of a man. Now, he's not throwing his father's record under the bus. He even says in verse 17, Behold, we know no fault. Nevertheless, God knoweth all things. Again, he's not apologizing for the Book of Mormon here. It's as good as it gets as far as he's concerned. I can't see anything wrong with it, but I'm just a mere mortal. If there are faults, God will recognize those. He knows all things. So be careful if you plan on condemning these things. He warns us of that in verse 17. And again, based on my time in the Bible belt, this is a shocking admission that the Book of Mormon makes repeatedly, that it is not a perfect book. Again, as Mormon says, it can't be because we're not perfect. Only God is. And though the books of scripture that we have are inspired, truly inspired, That does not require that they be inerrant. I read an interesting book about fundamentalist culture by a former fundamentalist who said that most fundamentalists and most evangelicals for that matter, picture the Bible descending from heaven like a sacred meteor, as if it there it were lodged in the earth, untouched by human hands, as it came pristinely from the heavens. And that's simply not the case. Again, I say none of this to diminish the power and truthfulness of the Bible. Remember, these things confirm those things and those things confirm these things. They are both divine witnesses of divine truth, but they did have to be written and recorded and passed down and translated by human beings. And as inspired as those human beings were, it does not deny the fact that divine truth had to pass through human minds and mouths, hands and pens, to get onto the page as we see it today. Polish the scriptures as much as you will, and you cannot burnish off the human fingerprints that are there. On the flip side, no amount of anti-biblical or anti-Book of Mormon attack, and I've spent the last decade or so studying both of those as intensely as I can, no amount of anti-scriptural attacks can burnish off the fingerprints of God that are all over these sacred records as well. Moroni seems to understand both sides of that and allows for the possibility of human error, even when he doesn't know where it might be. He's done the very best that he can, as have all of his predecessors. Well, most. Don't forget about the Book of Omni but to all my wonderful evangelical friends who are scandalized by the admission on the title page itself, and as we see it here in Mormon chapter 8 as well, the Book of Mormon does not claim to be a perfect book, simply the most correct of any book. And it's by abiding by its precepts that we grow closer to God, not necessarily by parsing every one of its jots and tittles. Throughout history, many of those who have lost faith in the Bible lost it because they ran up against something that conflicted with their do not bend mentality. And because they didn't have a bend but don't break approach to God's word passed through human hands, it was a break because I refused to bend on these things. So much anti-biblicism throughout history has taken advantage of a belief in biblical inerrancy and used it against those who espouse it. I am grateful that the Book of Mormon admits its lack of perfection, because nothing short of Jesus has ever come out perfect once it passes through human hands. That doesn't take away from my faith in the Book of Mormon or the Bible one iota. It provides a measure of flexibility to my faith, which I will be grateful for, as opposed to the brittle belief that sometimes shatters the moment it bumps up against something difficult. Now, remember what Moroni said in verse 12. If you'll simply have the faith to accept this record in spite of its imperfections, whatever they might be, you'll know greater things than these. Remember, scripture is just the means. The ends to which they point is God and Jesus Christ themselves. Remember, we saw that earlier. Mormon is asked to withhold certain truths from the scripture, to try our faith, and if we'll accept what we've been given, incomplete as they might be, then we've prepared our hearts to receive more. It's exercising faith and gratitude for the first and second shelves of the three, right? That prepares us eventually to have the third shelf brought down to place where we can actually examine its contents. Eventually, we will learn greater things than these. Verse 13, he says, I make an end of speaking concerning this people. I am the son of Mormon. My father was a descendant of Nephi and I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord. And then Moroni makes a fascinating differentiation in chapter eight, verse 14. He says, the plates thereof are of no worth because of the commandment of the Lord. For he truly saith that no one shall have them to get gain. But the record thereof is of great worth, and whoso shall bring it to light, him will the Lord bless. You see what he's distinguishing in that verse? Plates versus record. And the plates are the physical object that the record is written upon. The record are the words. The plates are simply what contained them. And ironically, even though those plates were of gold, he said, ah, plates are worthless. Who cares about the golden plates? It could have been the aluminum foil plates for all we care. It could have been the paper plates. It doesn't matter. What matters is the record that's upon them. Print them off however you'd like. Reproduce them on any medium We used metal plates, as we saw back in Alma 37, because if it's written on these plates, then they must remain. There's a permanence, a longevity to metal plates. But what really needs to be kept forever is the record. People who wanna attack the church saying, oh, well, but show me the plates. Well, the plates aren't gonna do anything for you anyway. Even Martin Harris learned that. If they don't believe God's word, the record, then seeing the plates themselves, it's not going to do anything. They didn't have faith in the first. And so proof for the second still doesn't add anything to their faith. It was non-existent. In fact, there's this irony there when it comes to those enemies of Joseph Smith who attacked him the night that he removed the plates from the Hill Cumorah. Those that kept him on the run in many ways as, as they kept trying to come down and search for the plates. They didn't care about the record at all. They cared about the plates. They were gold. And we want to have a piece of that gold Bible. And the irony behind that I think is the adversary couldn't care less about the plates. He was scared to death of the record, but he knew the people would care about the plates and not the record. Well, he compared about the records, not the plates. So it's like, oh, fine. You get what you want if I can get what I want. You can have the plates and do whatever you want with them, melt them down and spend the money but for me, I'm scared to death of the record that is placed upon them. I do not want people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Thankfully, because of the commandments of the Lord, as Moroni says, no one's going to get the place to get gain. It's one of the reasons that Joseph Smith himself had to wait four years, not just in terms of preparation to get up to speed, but preparation to wean himself off the cares of the world. This was a poverty stricken family. Remember the first time he saw the gold plates? It was the plates, the gold, that attracted his attention, not the characters, not the written record that was upon it. Joseph had to make that shift along the same terms that Moroni was in this verse. You have to see past what the record itself is written on. That's just packaging. It's the content that matters. And that's what you're gonna need to learn to see, Joseph. Same is true for each of us. So I love this verse. Plates, no worth. Record, great worth. Keep those in mind. So much of what is written to attack the Book of Mormon has to do with plates and not with record. They're missing the point. In other words, they attack the story of the book's provenance, where it came from, how it came forth rather than the message that it contains theologically. It's key purpose. When I was working on my second master's degree, my thesis was on the Book of Mormon's coming forth. Namely, the way it was perceived in the popular imagination. I wanted to kind of get into the average American's head so that when a Latter-day Saint missionary came and knocked on their door in the 1830s or 40s, saying, this is the Book of Mormon, I'd like to talk to you about it. What was already in their head? And so I read every newspaper article I could find from 1829 to 1844 that talked about the Book of Mormon. Again, I haven't read the Book of Mormon yet, but I've read something about it. It's, it's in the news. And so I, I already have a first impression. And what I discovered that amazed me is that hardly anyone ever talked about the record. They only wanted to talk about the plates. In other words, it wasn't the product, it was the packaging that captured their attention not the product, just the provenance, not the record, just the plates. Almost invariably, it seems that the person writing the newspaper article had never actually cracked the book open themselves. They just heard stories about angels appearing and and a gold Bible and stone spectacles, and they laughed it to scorn. The same is happening in our day. So much of what attacks the Book of Mormon is attacking peripheral issues instead of its message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same is true for those who attack the historicity of the book of Abraham, which is an even bigger issue currently. And again, it's all about the provenance and very little about the product. It's focused on packaging instead of contents. I'm not saying we should ignore provenance. If that's an interest and people want to study that history around the text, fine but don't do it at the expense or exclusion of the history described within the text. It's message primarily. The theology of the Book of Mormon is what blows me away. And the theology of the Book of Abraham does as well. If you are wrestling with these issues or facing someone who is trying to wrestle with them or throw them in your face, I'm so grateful for the differentiation that Moroni gives us in chapter 8, verse 14. You can talk about the plates and their provenance till you're blue in the face. That conversation is of no worth compared to the great worth that is found in studying the record itself. In fact, if you were to place the gold plates here and my paper plates here, guess which one I'd opt for? These ones, because I don't read reformed Egyptian. I mean, sure, as a cultural artifact, as something in the museum, it'd be fascinating to see, to look at, but as far as finding the great value that is there, if it's written in a language I don't know, it does me no good. I'll stick with my nice, accessible, dog eared, rebound Book of Mormon that has brought me nearer to God than anything else I've ever read. The plates were a means, the record is an ends. Now, remember what he says at the end of that verse, whoso shall bring it to light, him will the Lord bless. Now, I wonder what the antecedent of the pronoun it is. If it is the record, then who gets the credit for being blessed for bringing it to light? Joseph Smith does. Joseph brought it to light. But if it refers to the great worth of those records, then that could include any of us anyone who brings to light the great worth of the record we have before us in the Book of Mormon will be blessed by God. I feel those blessings come into my life anytime I study the Book of Mormon and try to bring its worth to light in people's lives. It's what the purpose of all these videos have been since March. I am trying to bring to light the worth of this record, which I consider to be great. And as you do the same, I promise the Lord will bless you too. In some ways, if you're we to take two prophets as personifying this, it was Joseph Smith that brought to light the record. And it was Ezra Taft Benson who brought to light the great worth of that record. He changed my life as a teenager, emphasizing the Book of Mormon every chance that he could. And I think it's up to us to continue that ministry. Now, whether we're speaking of Joseph Smith, which was probably the case here, or all of us as we bring to light the book's importance, verse 15 still applies. None can have power to bring it to light, save it be given him of God. For God wills that it shall be done with an eye single to his glory, or the welfare of the ancient and long dispersed covenant people of the Lord. Remember, Joseph couldn't bring forth this record if his eyes were pulled away by the thought of gain His eyes had to be single to God's glory, first great commandment, and the welfare of those who would read it and be affected by it, second great commandment. The same is true for you and me. Why do we want to talk about the Book of Mormon? Why do we want to share our perspective or our testimony of it? Is it to get any kind of gain? Then that's closer to priestcraft, which has to be avoided. But if it's with an eye single to God's glory, if we're doing it out of concern for others and their eternal welfare, then by all means... Bring it to light. You'll have power to do so. Verse 16 Blessed be he that shall bring this thing to light, for it shall be brought out of darkness unto light, according to the word of God. Yea, it shall be brought out of the earth, and it shall shine forth out of darkness, and come unto the knowledge of the people, and it shall be done by the power of God. So who is it that's bringing it to light? The he mentioned at the beginning of verse 16, eh, yes, thank you, Joseph, for your work on this, but really, who gets the credit? It's the end of 16. It's the power of God. But because this is a synergistic work, someone like Joseph and God himself, you get both the human and the divine fingerprints all over the work. That's what Moroni is getting at in verse 17, with this admission that faults may exist. He doesn't know of them, but again, it's passing through human hands. Be careful that you don't condemn it for that. Because how else can the things of God be made manifest to mere mortals when they pass through mere mortals on the way? Of all people, Christians should not be overly concerned about combining divinity and humanity. Isn't that the doctrine of the incarnation, after all? That Jesus himself is the fusing of these two sides, fully divine and fully human? After countless conversations with people who are struggling in their faith or have decided to leave the church or belief in God in general, so often it comes because a one-sided view of all divinity and no humanity has been overcorrected to an equally one-sided and dogmatic view of all humanity and no divinity. We have to be able to balance both in church history, in principle, in the way church is organized or run, There is humanity there, admittedly, but there is divinity there, emphatically. Prove those contraries. Wherever you happen to be on one extreme or the other, both sides are incomplete and inaccurate. So wanting all divinity and no humanity is wrong, and wanting all proof and not leaving any room for faith is wrong too. 18 suggests that. Those who say, show me, or you'll be smitten, again, beware. You're commanding something that is forbidden of the Lord because a demand for proof precludes the opportunity for faith. Verse 19, again, be careful. The same that judgeth rashly shall be judged rashly again. Joseph Smith himself said that. Don't demand perfection of me, because I'm not demanding perfection of you. You want to stack anything else up against that perfect measurement? Well, then you're going to get measured against that as well. So 19, don't judge rashly. Judge it by its works, he goes on to say. What works does having the Book of Mormon in your life produce? By their fruits ye shall know them. By their works will be judged. Or in verse 20, just leave it between the person and God. So please don't judge me for accepting the Book of Mormon. And I'll do my best not to judge you for rejecting it. In 21, he says, he that shall breathe out wrath and strifes against the work of the Lord and against the covenant people of the Lord, who are the house of Israel, and shall say, we will destroy the work of the Lord, and the Lord will not remember his covenant, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. The same is in danger to be hewn down and cast into the fire. See what Moroni is getting at? Don't fight the Lord's work and don't fight the Lord's people. He'll back them both up. Because in 22, the eternal purposes of the Lord shall roll on until all his promises shall be fulfilled. Can you kind of hear in that a prelude to Joseph's great standard of truth declaration that it will roll forth boldly, nobly, and independent? That's exactly what God's work will do because his promises are sure. Verse 23, he calls Isaiah to the witness stand to back himself up. He doesn't even have enough time for Isaiah to bear a full witness. He simply says, search the prophecies of Isaiah. I can't write them, but you have them before you, so study it. Then he goes on and brings more people to the witness stand. Yea, behold, I say unto you that those saints who have gone before me, who have possessed this land, shall cry, yea, even from the dust will they cry unto the Lord. And as the Lord liveth, there's the oath, covenant language again, he will remember the covenant which he hath made with them. He knoweth their prayers that they were in behalf of their brethren. He knoweth their faith, for in his name could they remove mountains, in his name could they cause the earth to shake. By the power of his word did they cause prisons to tumble to the earth. Yea, even the fiery furnace could not harm them, neither wild beasts nor poisonous serpents, because of the power of his word. You see all those hises in 24? His name, his name, his word, his word. God is behind all of this his people knew it. And so they prayed. They were selfless. They had faith. They did great works. They faced great trials. All that in verse 24. And in 25, behold, their prayers were also in behalf of him that the Lord should suffer to bring these things forth. Oh, I'm sure that gave Joseph Smith great confidence as he translated this record. They prayed for me too. Their mission was riding on the successful completion of mine. No wonder we're all in this together. And if they prayed for Joseph to bring these things forth, and I'm sure they prayed for you and me to continue bringing them forth, the importance, the great worth of these things as we share our testimonies with others. I hope we all get that sense. What would they have been praying about there's that beautiful painting I'm sure we're all familiar with of Moroni kneeling in the snow next to this stone box on the hill Cumorah into which he's about to lay the most important thing in his life, his father's life, his people's life, the record of his civilization. And he's kneeling in prayer. Now it never says clearly that Moroni prayed before he buried the plates, but wouldn't you? Here it does say clearly that his ancestors did pray for its coming forth. Of course they did. And of course Moroni would. Please don't let our life's work be in vain. Don't let our missions come to no purpose. Do not let us and our words molder in the dust. But like a voice from the dust, please let us speak. That was their prayer. And it was a prayer that God answered. See what Moroni says in 26? No one needs say they shall not come, for they surely shall. That's the promise. That's the petition they made and the promise God granted. For the Lord hath spoken it. For out of the earth shall they come, by the hand of the Lord, none can stay it. And here he shifts to the timing of this. We saw Jesus do a lot of this back in Third Nephi that the Book of Mormon's coming forth will be the sign to let the world know that the Father's work has commenced, that it's already begun, that gathering is underway. So if the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is the sign of that, well, are there any signs of the coming forth? When will we know when it's about to happen? Well, here Moroni tells us, I'll let you know when the book will come, at least I'll give you the cultural context out of which it will emerge. End of 26, it shall come in a day when it shall be said that miracles are done away and the book itself will disprove that disbelief. It shall come even as if one should speak from the dead at a time where people no longer believe that the dead will ever find life again. 27, it shall come in a day when the blood of saints shall cry unto the Lord because of secret combinations and the works of darkness. In other words, it will come as backup to those that are facing the wall facing opposition and persecution. And the book will vindicate them. It will give them the courage to face and stand up to those secret combinations, to deny those works of darkness. It will come to give strength to those saints who are willing to shed their blood in defense of the work of God. Remember what John Taylor wrote, whose own blood was spilled on the floor of Carthage. That the coming forth of this book cost the best blood of the 19th century. Well, just reading this record lets us know it cost a lot more blood than just that century's, and it makes it all worth it. Verse 28, it shall come in a day when the power of God shall be denied. This will be evidence to the contrary, showing that God's power is still fully at work upon the earth. It'll come in a day when the churches become defiled and are lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Yea, even in a day when leaders of churches and teachers shall rise in the pride of their hearts, even to the envying of them who belong to their churches. That's a fascinating statement and a wake-up call to anyone who is a leader or teacher in our church. If we ever are prone to priestcraft, see that's the irony of envying those who belong to their churches. I imagine that that must be an occupational hazard for any professional clergy. Who are doing what they consider the most important work. And then look at the pews being filled with people who are making more, doing less. You see, once pride enters in, how someone who is leading their church, teaching for it, might be prone to that kind of priestcraft. Well, why am I making less than they are when I'm doing such important work? No wonder Jesus constantly told his apostles, not to worry about anything, to go out without purse or script, to consider the lilies and behold the birds of the air, to realize that God would provide for them, to be humble and reliant rather than prideful and entitled, to never envy those that you're trying to serve. It makes me all the more grateful for a lay ministry throughout the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. No one is immune to pride or envy. But if we are serving more out of love than lucre, more to rejoice in the joy of our brethren, as Alma said to Korihor, when Korihor accused him of doing this for the wrong reason, those things help keep us where we need to be, serving out of love of God and love of neighbor, not love of the vain things of the world. Verse 29, he continues answering this question When will the Book of Mormon come forth? It shall come in a day when there shall be heard of fires and tempests and vapors of smoke in foreign lands during a time of natural disasters. Verse 30, it'll come in a day of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places. Get a sense of the signs of the times here. The Book of Mormon will come forth among the signs of the times. It will be one of them, in fact. Verse 31, it shall come in a day when there shall be great pollutions upon the face of the earth. There shall be murders and robbing and lying and deceiving and whoredoms and all manner of abominations. When there shall be many who will say, do this or do that, it mattereth not, for the Lord will uphold such at the last day. But woe unto such, for they are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. In other words, the Book of Mormon will come forth in a day of pollution on the outside and abomination on the inside, a day of permissiveness and relativism, to stand up in their face and say, God does have a standard. He does call us to a life of righteousness and repentance. In 32, yea, it shall come in a day when there shall be churches built up that shall say, come unto me and for your money you shall be forgiven of your sins. Now That doesn't have to just be paid indulgences. Don't confine yourself to thinking of the Protestant Reformation and what it was fighting against. Think of any one or any institution, not just churches, because church can be used as a metaphor for any kind of ideology or organization or institution. Beware of any that want to say that money is more important than the message of God, that prioritize gain over godliness, or those who ignore moral inexcusables in favor of social commendables, regardless of how much money we give to other good causes that is not what brings us the forgiveness of our sins that only comes through jesus knowing that moroni was speaking to just this time period knowing that only it would bring life back to his voice from the dust he addresses our day and says in 33 o oh, ye wicked and perverse and stiff-necked people why have you built up churches unto yourselves to get gain There's selfishness there, self-centeredness there, self-aggrandizement there. Why have you transfigured the holy word of God that you might bring damnation upon your souls? Interesting he'd use the word transfigured, which we usually think of in positive terms, like the Mount of Transfiguration or like what happened to the three Nephites. But if a transfigured is to change things across some divide, like we usually take it to take humanity and bring it up closer to divinity. Well, this is a transfiguration down instead of up. To take the holy word of God and transfigure it down to mere words of men that can be played with or tampered, denied or delegitimized, rested to our own destruction. And it is destruction that he warns us against. That's the damnation that we would bring to our souls. Behold, he urges, look ye unto the revelations of God. For behold, the time cometh at that day when all these things must be fulfilled. Behold, the Lord hath shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come at that day when these things shall come forth among you. And there's that second person pronoun again that his father began to use at the very end. There was no one else to speak to. This is now Moroni breaking the fourth wall, staring into the camera, knowing who he's speaking to. He says it in 35. This is haunting. Behold, I speak unto you as if ye were present, and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. There is power there. When you finally recognize that you're speaking to someone and you're seeing what they're living and going through, even though they're not physically present. Believe me, Over the last six months, I have come to understand in ways I never had before what it's like to speak to people who are not present, praying for the sense that you will know and feel that they really are. Here I am sitting in an empty office, staring into a tiny camera lens. I'm horrible at it, honestly. I would so much rather be in a classroom with living students to look into their eyes, hear their comments, feel their spirit, be moved by their needs. And here I am alone. But whenever the spirit comes to give life to whatever dead teaching I'm often guilty of, it allows me to speak unto you as if you were present, although you are not. It is an odd sensation but knowing that the voice will eventually reach someone. And I sense Moroni here praying for that clarity of seeing beyond the camera lens to an audience yet to assemble. He has seen our day. No wonder the Book of Mormon seems so perpetually relevant. He saw the time it would come forth. He saw our time. He saw that what book he was producing and, and sending forth would come in response to and answer to the world's problems. It is exactly that. And again, speaking to us, staring into the camera, notice what he says to us readers of the Book of Mormon in 36. In some ways, it's easy to read 26 through 34 and think, oh yes, those problems out there, those." professional clergymen guilty of priestcraft. Those who deny the miracles of God or want to excuse things in a nod to permissiveness and relativism. Well, this is for us, readers of the Book of Mormon. And he says in 36, I know that ye do walk in the pride of your hearts. Are you starting to squirm a little yet? I am. Guilty as charged. There are none save a few only who do not lift themselves up in the pride of their hearts unto the wearing of very fine apparel, unto envying and strifes and malice and persecution and all manner of iniquities. Is he still talking to us or is he talking about someone else? He ends the verse, and your churches, yea, even everyone have become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. Is there, wait, is, is there a footnote somewhere? Is there a JST that excludes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Please tell me there is. Not that I can find. Are we included in that list of everyone? Remember how the Lord begins the Doctrine and Covenants in section one, that yes, it is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth with which he is well pleased, but he's speaking collectively there, not individually. Individually, are we guilty? of polluting things somewhat because of the pride of our hearts? We're all in this together. We're the ones giving talks on Sunday. We're the ones leading congregations. We're the ones teaching classes and singing with children and going on activities and outings with young men and young women. What motivates us? What drives us? What diminishes us in terms of our effectiveness? Are we within that mass, or are we one of the few only? What are we up against? Pride, the second of the three great temptations Lucifer threw in Jesus's face. Worldliness and materialism, that was the third of the three. All manner of iniquities, that sounds like you include lust of the flesh, which was the first of the three. These are the same three temptations the adversary always uses, and are we succumbing to them as well? I fear that we are let's not say ye then, let's say we. In 37, we do love money and our substance and our fine apparel and the adorning of our churches more than we love the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. What do we love more? Money or those who don't have any? Are we looking for ways to spend our excess on ourselves or to share our excess with those who have so little? Is ours a quest for respectability or a quest for righteousness? Are we drawn more towards conspicuous consumption or silent service? Whose kingdom are we trying to build? The Lord's or our own? Morona has strong language for us in verse 38. I would say don't take them personally, but I think we're supposed to take them personally. Oh, ye pollutions, ye hypocrites. Ye teachers, and again, every ye needs to become a we to take it more personally as we should. We pollutions, we hypocrites, we teachers, we who sell ourselves for that which will canker, why have we polluted the holy church of God? Why are we ashamed to take upon us the name of Christ? Why? Because we think it might get in the way of our own name recognition? Why do we not think that greater is the value of an endless happiness than that misery which never dies because of the praise of the world? Is that really what would skew our perspective so much that we would opt for misery over happiness short-term rather than long-term? Worldly praise coming our way instead of the divine praise we offer to the one who truly deserves it. Verse 39, why do we adorn ourselves with that which hath no life And yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked and the sick and the afflicted to pass by us and we notice them not. I've always loved what the angels say to the women who assemble outside the garden tomb on resurrection morning. Their question is profound. They say, why seek ye the living among the dead? It's like, why are you at a cemetery? Why are you at a tomb? to find Jesus, and in their defense, they'd say, well, because his dead body was laid here just a few days ago. But that's the point, the angels would say. He is not dead, for he is risen. He is alive, and you will never find life by searching in dead places. You will never find the kind of life that is meant for us by adorning ourselves with that which hath no life. There's this irony that Moroni wants us to grapple with here. You care more about adorning yourself with lifeless things rather than looking around all around you at those who are about to become lifeless themselves, but they're living and they deserve the kind of offering you can give to living things. In fact, by so doing, you will find life in its abundance for yourself. What an irony to ignore the living all around us in pursuit of lifeless things. But are we all guilty of that in some way or another? Are we guilty of staying too connected with social media and not making connections with the living people right around us? Do we prioritize accomplishments over relationships I know I am guilty of that at times. Do we overemphasize the outward at the expense of the inward? Do we seek life in dead places? Verse 40 and 41, he ends this thought Why do you build up your secret abominations to get gain? Interesting that here he takes secret combinations, which is what we're used to saying, which were all about getting gain also. And he finally replaces combinations with what was probably on the Lord's mind all along. Not secret combinations, but secret abominations. Those are the things that get us confused as to where real value is to be found. As a result, we cause that widows should mourn before the Lord and orphans to mourn before the Lord. There's no one else for them to mourn before. We're not in front of them. We don't keep them before our eyes and also the blood of their fathers and their husbands. This is now those who have already passed on, those who have left behind their widowed wives and their orphaned children. And they are crying unto the Lord as well from the ground. Crying for what? For vengeance upon our heads, because we've neglected them. Reminds me of a verse in the Old Testament with such strong language. This is Exodus 21, where the Lord warns people, or after giving them the Ten Commandments, you better never offend a widow or an orphan. Because if you do, you will die so that your wives know what it feels like to be a widow and your children know exactly what it's like to be an orphan. You don't choose empathy right now, then I will force empathy upon you. You don't feel for them, then you will feel like them someday. That is strong wording but God has strong feelings about this. Since he chose to be empathetic in a perfect way, that's what the atonement was for. That's the warning in 41. Behold, the sword of vengeance hangeth over you, the sword that enforces empathy. And the time soon cometh that he avengeth the blood of the saints upon you, for he will not suffer their cries any longer. Do you remember we saw that back in 3rd Nephi chapter 8 and 9 and 10? The destruction of the wicked, the sword of vengeance finally falling upon them. Why? To avenge the blood of those that they rejected, persecuted, or even ignored. Those cities were destroyed to hide their wickedness from the eye of God and to respond to the cries of the righteous that were ascending into the ears of God. Brothers and sisters, where are we in all of this? We are Moroni's audience, his direct audience. And he's speaking to us as if we were present. And guess what? Now we are. The Book of Mormon has come forth to us in our day. And to borrow from the Book of Esther... The Book of Mormon has come forth for such a time as this.